the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we are talking about nurse burnout, something I can relate to. Also, access to women's health, GSM, Canada's new drinking guidelines, and are you in a loveless relationship? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. My first guest is a family physician with a special interest in women's health, in particular vaginal health or health at the menopause and beyond. She has a family practice and accepts referrals for contraception management, including IUDs, pelvic pain, irregular bleeding, menstrual issues, sexual health, hormonal health, and weight management. Yes, these are all issues that occur uh, for women at uh, throughout their life, uh, occur to men as well, but the focus is women's health tonight. She's the co-creator of MedVoice, an app that assists in efficient Kim's visit. Also, the co-founder of Fem F E M M E, the Federation for the Empowerment of Menopausal Women in Medical Education Forum for educating patients and physicians about menopause. She is all things menopause. She is Dr. Dadisha Holowenko. Good evening, Dr. Holowenko. Hi, Maureen. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Great. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm so delighted to have you. The work that you do for women, I mean, cannot be overstated. You're just incredible. I don't even know how you have time to see patients, given all that you do behind the scenes for (laughs) women to help them access better uh, and to educate women better. I mean, we know that the subject of menopause is, you know, associated with shame and silence and people don't know a lot about it. There are issues as it relates to personal lives, professional lives, emotional health, physical health, and, and you seem to do it all and, and are really paving the way to raise awareness about menopause and also access to healthcare. Why is why is it that access to health care for certain medical conditions and, and at certain times of life, why is it for women? Well, I think that um, sometimes women themselves don't understand that the constellation of symptoms that they're having is attributed to the stage of their life. And so they're busy um, they've got busy lives with many responsibilities. And um, I've had many times where, you know, women will come for one thing and then I start asking them about the list of other symptoms. And um, it isn't until I finished asking the questions that they go, oh, I never realized that these could be symptoms of um, the stage of the life that I'm in. And in particular, at times, menopause, and that and that brings up um, VVA or GSM or vaginal dryness. Basically, um, many people expect that vaginal dryness is supposed to occur. They don't necessarily associate it with uh, menopause or beyond. What exactly is vaginal dryness or vulvovaginal atrophy, genitourinary syndrome of menopause? I mean, there's so many names for it, <laughs> yet yeah. so few, few people understand what it is. <laughs> Well, for, firstly, I think that, you know, the majority of women um, might experience some vaginal dryness when they're breastfeeding because breastfeeding is a time of low estrogen. Um, but they're so busy with the baby that they probably don't even notice or recognize or don't prioritize 
it. The other time that women will experience vaginal dryness not associated to the menopause is is uh, some women will have vaginal dryness on the oral contraceptive pill. And mm-hmm. so these are two times that um, vaginal dryness can be a symptom and can easily be treated. Now, when um, women start in their 40s, uh, there is, we, we do, we are starting to use the phrase genitourinary syndrome of menopause because it's not just vaginal dryness. There's a lot of hormonal changes that occur that start to occur in a woman's 40s and continue um, through the menopause transition. DHEA and testosterone levels start to drop, uh, which can affect muscle strength. Um, and libido, and also some vaginal dryness. Estrogen levels can uh, start to drop, which will cause uh, the vaginal dryness, less lubrication, uh, health to the mucosa. And then progesterones um, will also start dropping, and that can cause issues of heavier bleeding with the periods. And these things don't necessarily happen all at once. Um, some will start to present uh, and be more prevalent, and then other symptoms can develop. So it can be very tricky for women to pinpoint um, exactly that it is part of a syndrome because it develops over time. And they may just have vaginal dryness, so they might be experiencing painful sex or or, vest- yeah. or itching or vestibular yeah. pain. Um, yeah. But But as you say, there's other components. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, some women will get dryness um, only with intercourse. Some women will have burning and itching throughout the day. I've had some women say that they can't even sit down because they are so Uh uncomfortable. And one woman said, I just thought this was brilliant. She said to me, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I never was aware of what was going on down below. Now Uh I'm aware of it all the time. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and also it can be associated with other components like urinary tract symptoms or urinary tract infections, I should say, um, yeah. which a lot of women, the perimenopause, the menopause or postmenopause. And, yeah. and I think GSM brings that in, better describes the condition. Absolutely. The urinary symptoms are a very big component. The decrease in DHEA and testosterone, um, I, I think, does contribute to the muscle weakness and the difficulties with controlling bladder, uh, as well as bladder urgency and irritation so that women feel like they can't hold their bladder more. So it's not just about vaginal dryness. It's the whole constellation of the syndrome of menopause. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could not agree with you more. This is such an important uh, health condition, if you will, to treat. So why? what is the main reason for treating GSM or vulvovaginal atrophy or even just vaginal dryness or recurrent urinary tract infections? Why well, do we treat that? Well, um, there are so many very good, very safe, effective treatments that I don't actually understand that question. Like, why wouldn't we treat it if we can make women feel better, if we can improve their sexual health, if you can make them comfortable, if you can reduce their 
urinary urgency, um, if you can reduce the risk for bladder infections, why, why not treat it? Absolutely. Uh, we treat heart conditions. We treat kidney conditions. We need to start realizing that we need to treat vagina conditions, vaginal conditions. It, yeah, and I think a lot, of the, the, the lot, a lot of the reasons why um, people don't seek treatment is they're either embarrassed, um, they don't know how to talk to their healthcare practitioners, or they've tried talking about it and they've been brushed off. Um, the other thing that happens is that there's a lot of misinformation about the safety or the side effects of a lot of these treatments. And it's not just um, the physicians that they speak to, but the pharmacists and friends and family members um, all, uh, you know, will express concern when a woman is talking about using hormones to treat their symptoms. Um, it's really unfortunate because there is absolutely no data to support that these treatments are harmful in any way. In fact, they are very safe. They are very effective. They work beautifully to help a woman improve how her body feels and functions. Um, and uh, so when I think women are starting to learn, they're starting to hear some of the advocates um, talk about how safe these medications are, and they're starting to ask questions. But it certainly is difficult. It certainly is difficult for women. Dr. Dadisha Holowenko is my guest. She's a family physician with a special interest in women's health, in particular at the menopause and beyond. Dr. Holowenko, thanks so much for staying on the line. We're talking about vaginal atrophy. Uh, I do want to get to trafies as well, some of the work you're doing around that. But um, I, this vaginal dryness, uh, itch, itching, painful sex, urinary tract infections, there are treatments. Uh, a lot of uh, women will just begin to moisturize their vagina. We know that's a bit like a, a Band-Aid solution. It relieves the symptoms, but it doesn't work on the root cause. And I'm really interested in root cause. So what are some of the treatments and um, that are prescribed by physicians for treating uh, GSM or vulvovaginal atrophy? Well, I think uh, the most important thing to realize is that um, as a woman's hormone levels decrease through the life change, um, it, they're, they're not going to come back. And so treatments are often not a temporary solution. They are treatments that have to be continued. Uh, when a woman starts to have some vaginal dryness and uh, she wants to uh, look for treatments for herself, the first thing is to use a lubricant while uh, she's engaging in intercourse. It prevents uh, tearing and uh, damage that can cause pain, which is only going to make the situation worse. Um, there are vaginal moisturizers out there, uh, especially with hyaluronic acid, which is the mainstay for moisturizing um, the skin. We have it in all of our face creams and hand creams, and it works very nicely in the vagina as well. Um, there are some probiotics that can be used for when women feel like uh, they're uh, having a discharge or there's a change in odor. This helps to rebalance the bioflora, and that can be used once every three months or so. 
But if those are not um, improving the woman's health, then she does need to speak to a physician or a nurse practitioner and talk about uh, some of the prescription options for her. The, um, there are several vaginal estrogens that are available on the market. Um, there is a vaginal ring. There are vaginal tablets. There are vaginal creams. And they all work very well. The creams are really work better for the um, discomfort and pain on the outside because the rings and the tablets sometimes just aren't enough to help improve that outside uh, discomfort. But yes, I I do agree that uh, there is a new kit on the block. Um, It's called Infrarosa or DHEA. It is a vaginal DHEA ovule that gets absorbed into the vaginal tissues and gets converted into estrogen and testosterone within the cells of uh, the vaginal tissues. It's wonderful because there is uh, no change in systemic hormonal levels. uh, And because it has both estrogen and androgen in it, it does a beautiful job of um, improving both lubrication and elasticity and the thickening of the mucosa. And there's also some evidence that it does help in uh, improving pelvic floor muscle strength as well, which might help improve some urinary incontinence. Uh, which is fantastic. Now, one thing that I see uh, my patients who have been prescribed local is that they will come back after seeing the doctor and then they might see me and they'll tell me that they didn't start the localized estrogen therapy because of the product monograph, because they were scared because of the black yeah. warning that's on it. Um, the new option doesn't have a black box warning. Is that cr- it's, it's unique in that way. Is that correct? Yeah, it does not have the black box box warning. I I would say that, you know, the North American Menopause Society, Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology of Canada and the International Menopause Society are all trying to remove the black box warning from the vaginal estrogens. Vaginal estrogens are very different than systemic estrogens. Um, They do not have any of the uh, worrisome risk factors as other um, as a systemic estrogen would Um, and the only contraindication to any of these treatments is um, if a woman has breast cancer and is actively being treated for breast cancer then there should be caution. Uh, What I have heard about intrarosa is because it is an intracellular absorption and conversion to estrogen and testosterone. I do understand that there is a trial going on right now. We don't have the results, but they are looking at the safety of using it in that very small patient population who Uh is being treated for breast cancer. So it's really exciting. This is a really, really exciting product to have because it might be the go-to for any woman. Yeah, I, I think it has that potential for sure. Very quickly, we only have about a minute left. We, we talked a lot about, um, you talked about using a lubricant during sex, and it just reminded me about tears, and wh- some women may experience vaginal bleeding. Very important to have a vaginal exam by a trained healthcare professional. Tell me just a, quickly about the advocacy work you're doing around trafees. 
Yeah, so right now in BC, um, physicians will get a tray fee to pay for the use of a speculum, and a speculum costs just under $5 um, if it's disposable, but it also costs about that much as well, even if you're using a metal speculum because of the cost of running the machine to sterilize it and some of the sterilizing equipment. So it it is a significant cost to a physician. Um, Right now, that Tracy only applies to PAP tests. Um, In BC, we are also moving towards women um, doing home collection PAP tests. And I am really afraid that if... um, if the powers that be do not cover a Tracy for a speculum exam without a pap test, that clinics are not going to be carrying speculums and women just aren't going to be examined. So I really exactly. do hope. I've got to, I do too. I've got to cut you off there. We're up against the clock, but we'll get, we'll continue this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Holowenko. When people are uncomfortable or lack the knowledge talking about a subject, and I did have a caller um, from the last segment call in and, and say it's important to educate men on the subject of menopause. And I do indeed agree with that because as I'm talking about subjects like menopause or they don't have the understanding, they create clever euphemisms to avoid having to say the actual word. Case in point, the change, the big M, and the best one, the Vijiji. Of course, I'm talking about menopause. And although 5 million Canadian women will go through menopause by 2025, many women are still not comfortable talking about it. Many men don't understand it. Keeping mum on menopause can negatively impact one's quality of life. After menopause, women experience changes in and around the vagina that can lead to moderate to severe sexual pain, which we just reviewed, and that can impact sexual satisfaction and ultimately relationships. As a nurse continence advisor, I'm very passionate about educating women and men on menopause, including the lesser known symptoms of menopause, like what we just discussed, vaginal dryness, sexual pain, urinary tract infections, sexual satisfaction. So I've invited a select group of, of patients willing to share their stories along with some esteemed women's healthcare professionals and thought leaders who will be joining the program over the next several weeks to educate all of us about everything menopause. And right now, I'm delighted to have on the program Carmen Whiten. She's the founder of Women's Health Coalition. She has spent most of her career working with community and charitable organizations in sport, disabilities, education, and health. She continues this work as the principal consultant of Ripple Enterprises, and she currently serves on the Alberta College of Pharmacy Council and as as an appointed member is on the Alberta Executive of the Public Affairs Association of Canada. Carmen has served on many boards and government advisory committees and believes that things can change when community, industry, and government collaborate. And I could not agree with Carmen more. Good evening, Carmen. Good evening. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me on the show this evening. You're so welcome. So health coalition, which I understand is going to be going national soon. Tell me a little bit about that organization. So the mission of the Women's Health Coalition is to create a movement to speak openly, learn and engage with purpose to address menstrual, reproductive and sexual health for life. And there's no question that menopause is a huge part 
of the life journey or the health journey that women are going to experience, and sometimes for many, many years. So I'm glad that you've invited me here to talk about it tonight. I'm so glad you are singing my song. This is the work that I do on the daily. <laughs> I am... And I mean, I mean, I, you know, I do a lot of presentations, I do a lot of webinars and, but I'm literally, I feel like I'm educating women, one woman at a time, uh, in my clinical practice. And, you know, it's a, it's the same education that I'm repeating. It's the same myths that I am dispelling. It is the same, uh, you know, assurance that I am giving, uh, to women. I, I see everything from, the issues or the the symptoms of menopause affecting their professional careers, affecting their personal relationships, affecting their lives, mothers. It affects every aspect of their health from sleep to weight management to sitting on a bicycle. Um, and And I feel like almost a bit of a broken record. And sometimes I feel like I'm not really getting anywhere. So I, I very much appreciate the Women's Health Coalition. Um, and, you know, it, it's exhausting work, but, you know, somebody has to do it. So I'm so glad that you're doing this. So tell well, me and I'm, how I'm glad this... you're doing it as well. <laughs> in, in, my own, in my own little place, um, <laughs> in the corner of Canada. Um, now I do, although I do do online visits as well and, and education. So tell me, how is this information delivered uh, to people? And, and also, why did you choose this particular area, these particular areas of healthcare? So um, when the women's health, before the Women's Health Coalition started, I had the privilege of sitting with, I don't know, it was probably about 20 women who were talking about uterine fibroids. And the message that came through loud and clear was that they had drifted in the health system for, you know, over a decade, all, all of them, actually, not just some of them, but all of them. And they were drifting in the, the health system because people don't take those gynecological health symptoms seriously. And so whether you're talking about fibroids or endometriosis or menopause or heavy menstrual bleeding, it's very easy to just chalk it up to being a woman and it being normal. And what I realized um, from these women is that their life started to change when they started taking more authority over their health experience. And so I really started to do a deep dive into it. And, um, you know, there were questions about uterine fibroids, certainly, and endometriosis is, is important. But really, it was that the system was dismissive. The, the system is biased. And, um, and unfortunately, the system, and particularly in the area of menopause, um, when it comes to gynecological health, it favors women who have means and uh -huh. it favors women who have access to private health care and benefits through their employer and that kind of thing. And so I realized that, yes, I could talk to women one at a time and create a patient association and that would be empowering. Um, but I needed to have a broader sweep. I wanted the system to change. And so I describe what we do as um, we are absolutely at our core 
influenced by women's experiences. And I hear them every day. I hear them, you know, through stories and also through personal conversations. And then we're informed by healthcare professional expertise, people like you who are also talking to women who are delivering services. And then this is the core of what we do as an advocacy organization. We advance our advocacy efforts through evidence-based recommendations to government and health system influencers. And it's working. I don't know why it's working so fast, but there's such a huge appetite right now for for women's health that um, it's going at an acceleration that through all my career I've never seen before. And, and how do you know that it's working? And I, and I also wanted to mention something you talked about women I think it's unfortunate because there there certainly is research to support that uh, some physicians dismiss women's health issues and, and women certainly feel dismissed or can feel dismissed by some physicians um, and, and healthcare providers. And, and I think that has created uh, a landscape where laypersons who are wanting to sell products or capitalize on, on women um, you know, give misinformation, do not give full information because they don't have any medical background or training. Um, you know, they, they, they provide a bit of a service, I think, in, in that they might open up the conversation. But I've seen so much online that is misinformation that is, um, that, that patients then share amongst other, or women share amongst other women after they've seen something online. We have Instagram and TikTok and um, all sorts of uh, online um, people to basically create a business and I, I think in, in a lot of times capitalize. And so I think we have a couple of issues here that is most unfortunate. You know, the internet has tremendous benefit, but it, it also has the power to provide misinformation. And um, but but how do you know that the work that you're doing? How do you measure it um, that what you're doing is working? Well, uh, it's it's increments. Um, there's not going to be wholesale change overnight by any by any stretch. Um, but to give you an example, I had health system influencers and government department people during COVID all online, of course, because we couldn't meet in person. Um, but what I pointed out to them was that their the their own systems in Alberta, their public facing systems had no information about gynecological health um, available to the public. And while I had them on the line, they said, well, what about this site? And what about this public site that they have in this other site? And right online, they were going on there and and discovering that um, there was only one PDF from 2017 that had a list of of, um, what they called women's health conditions. Six months later, they had started a portal, assembled a team, and they were addressing this issue, and it continues to be addressed now. And some of the people who sit on my advisory council sit on that um, health system advisory board and um, are making sure we don't lose momentum on this. And it, another example, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Another example. I was going to say, is this the Alberta health system that's behind this? Yes. And so Initiative. what happened? Yeah, well, not behind the initiative, but they're the ones that when I raised it Uh um, to them as an issue, first of all, I'll be honest, I raised it to the minister. We are an advocacy organization, and I met with the minister, and I had said, here's some of the biases in women's health. Here's some of the gaps. Here's some of the barriers. And very quickly, 
um, he connected me with his department and, and said, this isn't acceptable and, and you have to do something about it. And I met with in a period of about two weeks after meeting with the minister, I think I, he opened the door for, you know, three different meetings with, I'm going to say, 15 different um, influential administrators and things started to change. You can actually go to the public facing systems now and find more gynecology. There's also a pathways group. Um, of healthcare professionals that is um, now beginning to develop gynecology pathways that are um, being guided or I guess steered by um, uh, urology pathways that have been in place for quite some time. Um, Many, I, I use an example many times that the urgency rating for male genital health condition surgeries, so this is a surgical um, urgency rating, they're rated as urgent and semi-urgent 10% of the time. Women's comparable conditions are rated as urgent and semi-urgent 1% of the time. And when I can Uh use stats like that, their stats, and say we have inequities, it's it's not about why it's wrong, it's about what we're going to do about it. And like I said, there's a huge appetite for it, and there is incremental improvements constantly. Carmen Whiten, the founder of Women's Health Coalition out of Alberta, is my guest. Uh, Carmen, uh, it just sounds like an amazing, or you have plans to make this national? We do. Um, So we held meetings in Ottawa uh, and Toronto in the fall last year in November. And so that chapter is ready to go. We hope to have, so Alberta was our, call it the pilot project. And I think we've created some practice models, set some priorities, um, and really understood how we could connect effectively with multidisciplinary healthcare professionals and their associations and government. Um, And so we'll use those practice models and we hope to have chapters in Quebec, Ontario, Atlantic provinces, BC, and, um, you know, the Prairie provinces by May 2023, which is Women's Health Week. Which is right around the corner. Fantastic. If you need any help at all, let me know, please. (laughs) Because you are certainly (laughs) singing my song. And I have to say, I'm a little envious but but happy that that this is happening but um you know for all of the women who have received misinformation who have not understood who who didn't have access to health care or or had questions or felt dismissed i mean my heart my heart breaks and i, I mean I, i'm very passionate about this work and i see so many suffer as a result of women not getting the health care uh that they deserve and and that they need um and, you know, it, there's so many, there's such a stigma and, and such a shroud of secrecy around reproductive health, around menopause, sexual health. I see that uh, people are embarrassed. Uh, healthcare providers are embarrassed. Patients are embarrassed. Um, how do we overcome that when we have this, it seems that we have this idea that if you talk about sex, you are shameful that... Um, women's desire, you know, is should be non-existent. Um, that there's a double standard when it comes to men versus women in terms of of sex, sexual health, sexuality. Uh, even for men, sexuality is shrouded in shame. Um, you know, how do we overcome these greater uh, constructs um, within our social system? 
I love and that healthcare asked, system. Hundred percent. I love that you've asked that question because just this past weekend we had a webinar about women's health in primary care, and we talked about that very thing and how embarrassing it is to have conversations about you know a leaky bladder or bowel function or painful sex, and so our health advisory team. Um, immediately said, you know, they're going to create a patient self-assessment and a toolkit that before the patient goes to their doctor, in the privacy of their own home, in the comfort of a discussion with their their partner, they can go through this self-assessment and talk about, you know, what's working and what's not. And even then, if they can't you know, say it when they're in the doctor's office, they could hand them the checklist and we know checklists work. So it it uh-huh. was instantaneous where the healthcare team said, let's start working on that and, and do it now. And then the other thing is, you know, we do webinars and we make them, we, we broadcast them live, but then we also make them available afterwards. We are working on a women's health and primary care practitioners. We did a survey Practitioners, 65% of practitioners said the area of women's health they were least prepared for was menopause. And Uh so that was a call to action for our group that we need to get more menopause information out there. So we're going to do some practitioner training in a variety of areas, but we're going to accelerate menopause because we know that there's a lot of women that need it. Practitioners are saying they want the education. And when I say practitioners, I'm not just talking about your doctor. I'm talking about Uh nurse practitioners, pharmacists, physiotherapists, and pelvic floor health is like this, this mystery field that is so accessible and and women aren't using them. And so uh-huh. um, we need to get more of that information out. And, and through things like this show, um, people will hopefully reach out to us and, and we can continue to build out our resources and, and build them, create a pan-Canadian perspective because health is delivered provincially. Certainly the federal government has a role, but every provincial system is different. So we really have to tackle this one province at a time. We certainly do. I, I do want to make a plug for Nurse Continence Advisors. <laughs> we have about yep. 100 across the country, very critical in terms of utilization, um, you know, in terms of delivering education. Nurse Continence Advisors have the gift of time. They're trained. It's an advanced practice model and um, can certainly be utilized, have a lot of information and understanding about women's health. I had a couple in my, uh, many couples, uh, not just one, but most recently, I've, you know, so often I hear this, where um, with during intimate relations, the um, the male of the relationship said, "Did that was that painful?" And the woman said, "Well, yes, but I thought you knew." And and you know, I people aren't mind readers, and this person was very and as people are, you know, and it was something that this woman had been experiencing for you know, about eight or 10 years had gone without treatment, didn't understand that there was treatment and didn't understand the importance of treatment in repairing not only the vaginal tissues and the vaginal health, but repairing. And that's something that I've, I've seen as well. And I feel when we don't talk about, we don't educate people about sex, it actually has an impact on the family and can lead to divorce and really impact the children. Anyway, that's another segment. <laughs> Carmen, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the program tonight. I really 
good luck with all of your work and and feel free to reach out nurse talk at hotmail.com <laughs> if you have Great. any uh, if you need anything at all it'd be my thank pleasure. you very much maureen it's been a delight to be on the show tonight you got questions she's got answers the nurse is in for nurse talk Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in with me. I really appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments at all, and you might have some comments about this next one, next number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. If you have been following... Oh, I did want to mention first what we're going to be talking about in this hour, of course. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about the impact uh, long COVID has had on businesses and the economy, as well as the loveless, and you know what that means, marriage with, uh, I have brought on a relationship coach, a divorce coach, in fact, uh, from the Vancouver area. Um, but uh, right now, if you've been following the follows guidelines, <laughs> You've been drinking between 10 and 15 drinks a week. Well, it's dry January, and it looks like dry January should continue all the year through, given the latest Canadian drinking guidelines that have changed in the past decade. Joining me on the line to discuss than the esteemed doctor of wellness and performance who empowers professionals to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's also a leverage-based leadership uh, speaker, trainer, and writer. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Well, I won't start this segment with cheers, given that... <laughs> Given that we're in the dry January, number one, yeah. and number two, that, um, you know, the reduction in the guidance that has come out um, from Canada, basically changing the recommendation of alcohol consumption drastically, drastically. I think that... Yeah. I think bars and restaurants are clutching their pearls tonight thinking, oh, mm-hmm. my goodness, is anyone going to listen to this? And and let's just quickly, what is the new uh, recommendation if you must mm-hmm. drink? If you must drink, a maximum of two drinks per week. And that went from maximum of 10 for females and 15 for men. So a significant drop. A significant drop. And so it's week regardless of whether you're male or female exactly. exactly and and so i mean are are people you know raising their glasses to this <laughs> are I people think... <laughs> <laughs> well, many people haven't even heard it some people haven't heard it yet some are, i know i know people who are still doing dry january so when february hits they'll be like what <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And this this report was funded by Health Canada. And and what is this based on? Well, overwhelming evidence. Like it's not even slight evidence that the two drinks a day is dramatically increasing your risk of multiple diseases and just illnesses. So it's evidence. We have more than enough antidotal retrospective, you name it, evidence to show that drinking more than two, if you got a drink at all, significantly and, increases your risk of disease. 
and, and Health Canada, it's notable that they also suggested mandatory warning labels for all alcoholic beverages as yeah. well. It reminds me of back the day when the cigarettes had those big old warning, you know, the lung cancer thing. I think it was, you know, so basically the same thing. They want to have the big, maybe the little skull, maybe, and the black cross or something saying drinking this might increase your risk of breast cancer or colon cancer. Who knows what it's going to look like? But yeah, they want a warning. Right. Right. And to the listeners out there who are listening or perhaps hearing this for the first time, what are your thoughts? Me one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight, or feel free to give me a call if you want to chat. One eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Is this going to change your drinking habits? I mean, a lot of people who are drinking more than fifteen drinks a week. Let me just say oh, <laughs> that yeah. actually. Is- um, in fact, I have a text here saying that I always lie to my doctor and tell them that I drink about half as much as I do. And you know what? Doctors know that. Oh, <laughs> Don't yeah, you? we do. Double. We do. Automatically and, double yeah. what people say. And there's blood tests also to let us give an idea what's going on in your liver. So, yeah, we we have a spidey senses. We get it. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a little bit of shame for people who are consuming a significant amount of alcohol. But but somebody might take this and say, oh, my goodness, I'm, you know, I'm drinking 20 drinks a week now. I'm going to go down to two. And because they might have an anxiety disorder like that they think is that's helping them. And they might actually, um, you know, reduce it. And that can be dangerous as well. So be careful if you have decided to go from 15 10, 15, 20 drinks a week to two for the one Canadian out there that's going to do that. Um, make sure you do that very slowly. Yes. Withdrawal is a big, is a real thing. Like it's. It, it, withdrawal is serious. a very dangerous thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you, there's a risk of seizures and a, and oh, a risk yeah. of death as yeah. well. So the the 90 page report from the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction detailed a, ver- a variety of health risks associated with what was previously considered low alcohol consumption, that 10 to 15 um, drinks a week. And so what are some of those things that, um, what are some of the dangers of drinking alcohol? Low inhibition, right? We all know that. Um, That's social, um, breast cancer, colon cancer, esophageal cancer, pretty much every cancer out there. Diabetes, heart disease, heart failure, um, kidney disease, Alzheimer's, like there's pretty much every condition alcohol can be implicated. So it's a really hard sell to say there's no harm done by drinking two plus a day for years Absolutely. and years and years. It's over time, right? It's, it's a cumulative effect. It's not just you did it for a little while. It's the years or decades that can do this. It's that, it's that saturation. I yeah had my clinical practice she said that her mother had been admitted to the hospital and um she and her sister um were surprised to not surprised to hear um well the doctor said to them your you know your mother claims that she doesn't drink but tests are abnormal Mm -hmm. and i'm having a hard time believing that um and actually the size of her brain has shrunk but yeah. they, she said, my sister and I looked at each other like, my mother doesn't drink. <laughs> my mother, <laughs> you know, drinks daily. Um, yeah. And, you know, brain health. As people, how dangerous is 
uh, consumption of alcohol on brain health, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, cognitive function, brain fog, yeah. risk of falls and fractures. It's huge, and it can cause irreversible damage. So again, your your brain is crucial. Like you can't live without it. So, and we don't see our brains, so I think no. people have a hard time imagining. Like you see a broken arm, you see a broken leg. You know, you can yeah. feel back pain, and but we don't see the changes in the brains, and I think that's one problem that people have, or they just can't that that the brain could be impacted, that could, that the brain could shrink, that it can lead to depression and anxiety. A lot of people treat their depression with alcohol or they treat their anxiety yeah. with alcohol and then that leads to depression. Yeah. But I think yeah. brain health is something that we really have to think about because it makes uh, a person's senior years that much more difficult. Definitely. You want to protect your brain and one, a few things that you can do definitely is reduce or eliminate alcohol and keep that blood pressure nice and low. Like we talked about that in previous episodes, like your brain is precious. It's the saddest thing to see somebody going through dementia or those who are aware that their memory is slipping, but it just it's just depressing, right? To know that you're not where you used to be. And also brain tumors too. There's brain cancers that... Alcohol can be a risk factor, so uh, protect and your I brain. I think a lot of people. I don't. A lot yeah. of people don't realize, and I know I've met women who've had breast cancer and then have said I've stopped drinking after my breast cancer diagnosis. Had no idea there was an association. I have a text here from uh, from Bill in Hamilton, Ontario, recovering alcoholic, almost twenty five years. Congratulations! I could yeah. never have two drinks. Laugh out loud. Good point, Bill. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, that's that's such a great point. Um, and, you know, it's anyway, I don't know. Alcohol consumption, the dangers of alcohol needs to start with education. And I, I actually think it starts in the home. Yes. But unfortunately, the partying may start in the home as well, especially when parents want to party with their kids. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Definitely, parents, caregivers, you're the first educators for your child, whether or not you knew this or not. They are watching you, so you're modeling behaviors for them, expectations, and the culture around alcohol. Like the way we in North America approach alcohol is a lot different than, let's say, in France or somewhere where kids are seeing their parents drink at an earlier age, but the association is different. It's more of an enjoyment. Now, things may have changed since COVID in most countries, but still. Um, uh-huh. parents, our kids, they're, they're looking at you. So it's, they see what you're doing, even if you're not saying what you're doing, right? It's, they're watching more than listening. So yeah, uh-huh. have those conversations. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We are talking about long COVID and the cost of long COVID to employers. Um, this is absolutely shocking. Thanks for staying on the line, Dr. My Mitchell. Pleasure. Um, you know, a lot of, it's not the variants that are causing problems, I think, these days. It's the, um, you know, the disregard for COVID, the yeah. complacency. 
Um, The film industry is one industry who has really taken COVID protections with a plum, you know, requiring masks, requiring mandatory vaccinations, requiring testing, you know, up to five times a week. Um, But other businesses, I don't think they've actually, they've caught on to this. Mm -hmm. And because I think they view it as an expense, the film industry seemingly has tons of money. Um, But employers and small businesses, you know, they may not have the budget, but what, you know, some of these numbers are shocking and, and research has shown that it's costing employer sponsored health plans, significant amount of money. What are, what are some of the numbers after they've been crunched uh, as to how expensive this is? Yeah. So the numbers on average for long COVID, it was about almost $2,700, which is 26% higher than the average diabetic spend. And Diabetic who are using insurance benefits definitely do eat up a lot of that cost. So that's an expensive illness to treat and manage. So 26% higher, right? Um, People that don't, this is for businesses that don't have mitigation plans. They don't exactly. have protections in place. They, they're just like, come to work, whatever, maybe sit six feet apart. That's about it. Um, but they're not promoting masks or hand hygiene or not coming to work sick kind of a thing. So, th- and that's per employer is spending close yeah. to $2,700 um, a month. And, and how about the increase in medical spending? How high was that per member per month? Yeah, it was over 200%, like 203% increase in medical spending per member per month um, versus like, 6,000 compared to similar patients without long COVID. So it's a huge expense. And then there's hospital costs, which again, the employer, now this is U.S., the, the employer will definitely feel that because they don't have our, um, you know, healthcare system that covers the cost of diagnostic testing. But seriously, it's 126% increase in diagnostic mm-hmm. labs and imaging procedures. So huge cost. And you know, Maureen, I'm so thankful that you brought this topic up because I don't think people really, they they look at the, you know, my rights and all this stuff, talk about COVID and mask or no vax, vaccine or vaccine, but just look at the numbers. This could destroy a business. And I'm sure there are businesses that have been destroyed financially because the sticker shock hit them. Mm-hmm. You just didn't Absolutely. hear the truth, right? And it also results in, it may not infect, uh, impact or affect um, Canadians like it does Americans because of our yeah. different healthcare systems, but absenteeism does. And the study Huge. found that long COVID patients reported a 3.6 times greater likelihood of missing work for medical reasons than planned members without the symptoms. I think that it's time that businesses, because what does this uh, lead to? This leads to layoffs, people losing Huge. their jobs. It leads to layoffs. Impact on the economy. Yes, and those who are left working being overworked, then getting burnt out, exhausting, then quitting. Like, it's it's a domino effect. So it's basically like businesses, we, you have to take a stand. Don't wait for the government to make rules for you. Like, what you mm-hmm. can do to mitigate your risk, keep your employees safe, and keep your business viable, and to be able to get through another recession this is critical. Like this, this is a really, this is a really good eye opener. Like it's an amazing eye opener. It, it certainly is. And the average, pre- yeah, and the average predicted cost of long COVID to patients is nearly ninety five hundred within the first six months following a diagnosis. So, well, that's their copay. Their, that's what they're paying. Right. So how much? Yeah. How much more the insurance company, right? Because you know, a good 
insurance in the U.S. is the, the patient's paying like 20% of the insurance paying 80. So if that's what they're paying out of pocket and then the employer is covering the, a big chunk, like this is, these are huge numbers. That could, that could destroy a budget like any day. That, absolutely. Hey. And just bringing some in, maybe having a COVID captain, maybe ensuring that people don't come to work sick, making sure that you have hand sanitizer, promote, push, put some signs around, wear your mask, wash your hands, especially after, before and after you eat. Yeah. You go to the bathroom kind of a thing, but really, you know, it's, it's not a big cost to actually put those protections in place for people. Dr. Mitchell, thank you once again so much for joining the program and educating all of us. My pleasure. Thanks, Marie. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. My next guest is the driven and compassionate entrepreneur and CEO behind Divorce Redefined, her Vancouver-based divorce and decision coaching practice. Divorce can be messy, stressful, and a particularly raw experience, and few truly understand the process, know their options, or know how to most effectively cope with and manage this major life transition. After going through her own high-conflict divorce, this passionate and determined mother of two became inspired to help others successfully difficult time in their lives. As a certified divorce coach and certified divorce specialist and trained relationship decision coach, Cindy created her unique practice to change the experience of divorce by helping individuals and couples at an international level through every stage, just thinking about it from finding life beyond. Cindy Stibbard joins me on the line. Good evening, Cindy. Hi, Maureen. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Good How are evening. you? I'm fine, thank you. What, what a great, uh, what great work you do. And uh, this is a great subject. Now, I just wanted to quickly, I a lot, some, you know, and, and I do respond to them. <laughs> and mm, so I had yeah. this one question um, and it, and it's, you know, anyway, it's sort of that thought, you know, I, I think behind the question was, you know, should they divorce? I actually think this mm-hmm. was a, a, an extramarital affair situation. I'm reading between the lines, but. Okay. It, and the question is, what about a military wife married to a 40 year old retired vet, 22 years married, four kids, youngest is six, oldest is 12. Divorce means bigger loss for him, gains for the wife, cheaper to keep her. Should the vet just cheat for the rest of his lifelong pension? Complicated, eh? And let's not even bring up family ties, deep roots, culture, and traditions. Would you say doomed and bound after military life because of the deep ties like finances, property, kids, career? Quote, unquote, or in parentheses, sorry, wife never worked. So I wrote back, you got that wrong. (laughs) And then... Uh, she wrote back and said, she absolutely did, but I'm hoping you know what I mean. She wasn't an employee on a W-2. She was a homemaker providing for the kids. And I said, military wife gets half because she worked a much harder job as a homemaker providing for the kids. Mm-hmm. One is happiest when living true to themselves. Not sure, but sounds like he's got excuses up the yin-yang. Cheating men don't leave home until they are caught and thrown out. <laughs> Keep her? Question mark. What year is this? Sounds like she would gain more than money based on him leaving, <laughs> which I don't oh think he will. Gosh. Anyway, right. so that's, um, there's a lot there, a lot mm-hmm. to speculate about. But um, this is somebody who I think, I mean, it's pretty obvious, 
and let me know what you think out there, Canada, 1-877-399-9898. You know, it sounds like she's having an affair with this military man. Mm -hmm. He's he's saying he can't leave because he, you know, he'll lose um, half of his money. But uh, I'm sorry, her job was 24-7. But, you know, divorce is messy. It's stressful. They bring up Mm -hmm. the family, the kids, the finances, the pets, everything. Um, What is it that you see this? And and, and you, as you say, you went through your own high conflict divorce. What was that like? Mm -hmm. I have so many questions. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, (laughs) I mean, divorce is one of those things that we don't want to talk about, right? This huge taboo subject that's happening all around us all the time. And it's it's tricky because it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. It really comes down to your own unique circumstances and what is going to work best for you and your family long-term. I mean, there are lots, I see this all the time, there are lots of marriages that are truly unhappy, but that there are constraints around leaving. You know, the children are one of them, the finances are another, potentially religious, your religion is another, and Uh what the expectations are in in your culture. So there are a lot of reasons that people say, but, you know, if this is, if we're going through this cheaper to keeper mindset, you're really basically choosing a life that you aren't being fulfilled in either. You know, we can't really buy that type of fulfillment. We can all go through life and be comfortable financially, but is that really worth it to you? You know, and for some people it is. For some people it's the practical reasons. And I think, I mean, I don't want to stereotype and generalize, but I think for a lot of men, it it, it is about creating a bit of a container you know I've got the family I've got the wife I've got the job I've got the house I've got all these things and that's what they're they define success as in a way right whereas I think sometimes Uh other ways and I want to say especially women because 68 percent of divorces are initiated by women women get Uh into situations where their lifestyle is great they create this family you know they've got this unit but they're seeking something more you know, there's something that is missing in their marriages. And whether it's love, whether it's intimacy, whatever it is, you know, we seek something more than just what your financial status can provide. So, you know, at the very beginning of every relationship, like we fall into love with a person based on chemistry. But chemistry is not going to keep us there for the long term. Mm-hmm. It's the compatibility factor that we don't really look at, we don't give a lot of weight to at the beginning because we think it's going to work itself out. Because, I mean, if someone is, you know, really attractive and they're financially successful and they're really intelligent, of course they're going to end up being emotionally secure, right? (laughs) But, of course, that's not always the way that it is. And over time, Mm -hmm. you know, if we aren't compatible and we just have chemistry, well, we've got a fire that's, like, trying to keep burning on damp kindling, Right. But if you got just compatibility with no chemistry, then you've got a friendship. So that's where we kind of get stuck. Exactly. And um, we we talked about I mean, one thing I am reminded of a couple in my clinical practice who had met on a cheating site for married people, uh, Ashley Madison. And, you know, he said he was comfortable in his home with the couple friends that they had and, and the in-laws and his children. And, but there was, it was a loveless or sexless mm-hmm. 
relationship. Mm -hmm. And so he sought sex outside of the, of the relationship, but he never wanted a divorce. But of course, mm -hmm. his wife threw him out because, you know, that was a, a deal breaker for her. And then he mm -hmm. ended up, you know, being, being with the woman that he had cheated with, but it had, it had literally catapulted him out of his neighborhood, away from his golf club, away from his yacht club, away from his friends and his family, his children wouldn't speak to him. And he, you know, became depressed and, and realized like, this wasn't the life that I wanted. It was the sex that I wanted, but it wasn't the life that I wanted. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's one of the problems. And, and I'd asked you to come on, you know, specifically you asked me what we want, I want to talk about. And I said, you know, the loveless <laughs> marriage, because mm -hmm. I saw a post that you'd put on, on Instagram about that. And, you know, how important is, and well, actually, let's define what the loveless marriage is. Yeah. Um, you know, lo loveless marriages can come on all different levels. And to go back to the infidelity piece just for a second, I mean, I might have unpopular opinion, but in my opinion, I don't believe that infidelity is the cause of a divorce. It could be the precipitous action that, that takes you there, but your mm -hmm. marriage was already struggling for you to be able to get there. And that is one of the indicators of a loveless marriage. And, you know, by uh -huh. definition, a loveless marriage is, is really where the love is gone. But love isn't the only thing that's missing from a loveless marriage. Usually it's intimacy and meaningful connection between the spouses as well. And we might think, oh, you know, you'd have to know that you're in a loveless marriage. Of course, right? Like it should be obvious. But it's not always true. You know, when you're in a marriage for a long time and you're building a life together and establishing careers and you're having kids, the love starts to really wane. And it's like a slow growing cancer in a way, you know, disrespect and disconnection can actually grow for years in a marriage before it entirely takes over. And it usually starts with small things like really work demands. They separate you. One spouse maybe stays home with the kids, just spending less time together. The kids are keeping you both so busy that you literally have no time to be together and to even you're too tired to even be intimate. And so you're, you're disconnecting on those levels already, but you're looking at it as this is just a phase. You know, we're just going to get out of this. We're just in this really hard phase right now. But that hard phase is when everything starts to break down. You know, the uh -huh. fighting begins. You get sick of, of the fight, so they end up stopping altogether. And, it, and the distance grows. And, you know, at first you don't really notice it too much, and you think this is just, like I said, a phase. It'll be back to normal when the kids are better. But then you realize that the distance is there. And you're not, you aren't taking the time to really dig into those hard conversations because that's also really hard. So what a human beings are we're really amazing at is we're so good at avoiding the things that we don't want to see. And a lot of times in marriages, even when there's infidelity, we know it's, we almost know it's happening. If you were to look back at a, a lot of couples, and I'm not going to say all, but a lot of couples where that's an issue for them the red flags were there. The flags were all there. All the signs were there if they were to look back and really take a look. But we, we try to avoid that because denial is super powerful. We don't want to see what is really there. So, uh -huh. you know, there are lots. I mean, I've got 10 points of 10, 10 ways to, of signs to tell that you're in a loveless marriage. 
And then there are also, I think, three different kinds of loveless marriages that people tend to want to stay in. They want to stay in them. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.